This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, where we will help you learn to invest in 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and for the first time in a very, very long time, I am sadly not joined by my equity buddy, Ren. Unfortunately, circumstances have meant that he will not be able to jump on this intro with me despite his every attempt. So... That is sad news, but it's okay because today we're bringing you another interview in our expert investor series, something that we haven't done for a while now. Um, So we're very excited to do that. And good news is Ren is part of that interview. So for those of you who were sad that you wouldn't be hearing his voice, have no fear, you will be hearing it. Before I jump into introducing our fantastic guest today, there are just a couple of uh, bits of housekeeping that... I want to do uh, as always for all of our equity mates. So firstly, uh, if you haven't already, please jump on and start following us on Instagram. We are not just pumping it with memes uh, despite my every effort. We're actually using it now as a platform to provide to provide you all with some inspiration and new concepts. So during the week, we'll be doing things such as pardon the jargon, going through some key terms that you need to know as an investor. Uh, we do a company in the spotlight. You know, there's a lot of companies out there at the moment uh, on the ASX, uh, the Australian Stock Exchange, that as a beginner, it's very hard to come across and find. So we will be um, putting a company in the spotlight, an Australian company each week, uh, just to give you some inspiration and give you an idea of how many uh, companies are out there and, and then what they do. Uh, we'll also be going through some news. And uh, of course, we make mention of our Thought Starters weekly email every Monday. So please follow us on Instagram. It's uh, it's turning into a pretty nice little resource for all beginner investors. Also, we're getting a lot of uh, questions coming in from new listeners. You know, which episodes should they start listening to? Should they start at the start? Should they start at the current and work backwards? So what we've decided to do is we've collated all of our basics 101 episodes into one sort of nice little package that can be found online on our website, equitymates.com forward slash essentials. And that's probably a good place to start. And also, if you have been listening to the show and want to refer back to episodes that are all about the fundamentals of investing, um, that's the place to do it. It's called Essential Learnings, and it's all of our basics 101 episodes. Uh, So that's a great point to start if you are unsure where to start listening. So jump in and have a listen to that. Um, You can use it as a a point of making a list and then use it through Spotify or iTunes or however you, you listen to your podcasts. And finally, just a reminder that we, uh, we do have our Ask Us Anything forum online. So if you want to ask us anything, please do. And what we will be doing is then answering all your questions that come in over the month in the last episode of each month. And we really look forward to doing that episode because there are some fantastic questions that come in from our listeners and they are incredibly beneficial for everyone to hear. So if you have asked us a question via email, Facebook, whatever it may be, and we haven't responded, then that is because we are waiting until the end of the month to do so. Unless it's critically important and we'll respond on the spot. So that's some housekeeping. So today we are excited to bring you an interview with Chris Bricky. Chris is the CEO of Stockspot, which was Australia's first ever digital investment advisor. 
Chris has over 21 years of experience in investing and has spent most part of his career as a portfolio manager at UBS. He came straight out of uni and went into managing money at UBS, so a pretty awesome job. He holds a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of New South Wales, and he's also a member of the ASIC Digital Advisory Committee, so very experienced. He's a pioneer in the investment advice and personal finance space. He started StockSpot when he was 28 years old. Uh, when he realized that consumers were being taken advantage of by unfair fees and there was a bias uh, towards advice when they invested. So we dive into all things StockSpot. Probably one of the more exciting parts for us was that he's very famous for winning the ASX high school share trading game three times as a teenager. And that's something that Ren and I are playing at the moment. So it was great to sit down and try and get some of the strategies that he used back in the day to see if we can put it in place. Because I know some of our equity mates are also playing along with us. So in this interview, we discuss a wide variety of investing topics, everything from the basics 101 through to creating great portfolios and also why it might not be the best idea for me to be sitting in cash at the moment. So we learned a lot from Chris and we hope you do as well. Enjoy. So we are joined by founder and CEO of Stock Spot, uh, Chris. And uh, we're very excited to have him on because I think he has a fantastic background that is going to be incredibly relatable to many of our listeners out there, Ren. So excited to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into StockSpot, there's some really interesting points that we want to cover about your your background and your career. And you know, as we were just saying off air, then you know, we started Equity Mates to try and encourage as many millennials as possible to join our journey as we learn to invest and battle our way through. We've all got to start somewhere, and, and you bought your first stock at 10 years old, from from what I've been reading. So to kick off for our listeners sometimes the hardest part is pressing that buy button. And usually one of the reasons is, you know, I don't know what to buy. So at 10 years old, what was the stock that you bought? And, and how did you actually choose it at that age? Well, yeah, I'd say it actually it was probably a lot harder back then because you didn't have podcasts and the internet and all these sorts of research resources. So, I mean, back then my my research process was looking at through a newspaper, if, if anyone knows what, what they are. <laughs> um, and the first stock I picked, so my dad sat me aside when I was 10 years old and, and said, look, this is how the share market works. And as a an exercise, I'm going to give you $1,000 to invest and you can choose one share. Um, and, he, and he sort of opened up the paper and said, here are all the different options you have out here that you can buy all the different shares. And there's obviously the hundreds and hundreds listed in the papers. Um, so I studied uh, the paper for a few weeks and read a few articles. And then I decided to buy um, a company which doesn't exist anymore, um, but it was called Savage Resources. This was back, at, I think, based on my diary, it was in January 1996. So I just turned 10 years old. And I kept a diary, actually, for the first couple of years of every share that I bought. You know, why I bought it, I, I cut out newspaper clippings, to, um, which sort of, you know, showed how it was going. Um, every couple of weeks, I'd update what the high price was and the low price was and what my percentage profit was, which, looking back, I, I, I couldn't, can't believe I actually knew how to calculate that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, and, and kind of watched and learnt over um, over a few months and watched the share price go up and down and, and my profit go up and down. Um, I, unfortunately, a few months later, I, well, first of all, I sold it and, and made a 22% profit in, I think, about five months. And then I went to my, my old man who'd bought it for me and said, okay, Dad, thanks. Can you um, give me the profit that I made? And, and he said, look, Chris, uh, I'm sorry, but that was just an exercise. I didn't actually invest in it for you so that there isn't oh. actually... Profit. Oh no! Oh no! And yeah, you can imagine, like as a young ten-year-old, getting ripped off, but by you know a function of a few hundred dollars by your parents, and how that feels, and the sort of trust you lose in your parents at that young age. <laughs> so I think the hard lesson I learned, first of all, is not to trust my old man. But that actually, it probably made me more curious and more interested to um to do it myself. I, I sort of decided, okay, well, if if they're not going to help me out here, I'm, I better learn this stuff myself and and actually put my own money in. So I, I think the discipline of filling out an investing journal, especially when you were you know ten and eleven years old, that's a great lesson right there for our listeners, and uh, definitely something we would suggest people do, especially when they're starting out. Looking back on that investing journal. Uh, how did you go in your first couple of years? Were there any uh, any lessons that stood out or any mistakes that you made you know, over and over again? 
Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with you guys. You, using a, a, a journal for investing is really useful because one, it creates some sort of discipline and, and like investing or, or trading, depending on how you're looking at it, it is really like a discipline. Um, and, and it helps you kind of overcome your emotions because you can, you know, write down and then refer back to why you bought something or why you sold something. I mean, in terms of lessons, so that was in 96 that I started. And I think from that sort of 96 to 97 period, resource stocks were kind of the, the hot area. And, and so I think that was where I was sort of focusing my time. And a lot of news articles were written about resource stocks. I, I think I'm, I made a bit of money in that area. And then the attention turned towards tech stocks in, in sort of the 98 to early 2000 period. I think, I'd, to be honest, I don't think I learned too many lessons in that period. And, and the reason I say that is I think you learn a lot less when you're investing, when you're making money. So, you know, I was reading the newspaper, buying and selling stocks and, and finding it pretty easy. So um, the, the easier you find it, I think the um, the less you think about it and the more that you're, you're attributing those profits to, oh, I, I must be good at this. I must be skillful. I must be you know, better than all the other people out there reading the newspaper. I think my big lesson probably came then in, in in early 2000 when a lot of the money that I had built up from trading and, and doing quite well, I lost, you know, within a matter of weeks. And, and when you lose money, I think that's when you, you actually learn money, uh, learn, you know, learn real lessons investing about, you know, risk management and, and the importance of diversification. But also, I think the most important lesson is is learning that you don't really know very much at all. So how old were you in, in the 2000s where you'd, you'd lost all or majority of your money uh so so in i think the big fall sort of started around march or april 2000 and and you know this, this was a market that had gone up by i think it was like 20 or 30 percent just in the couple of months prior so it was very very hot um, yeah, every stock you were buying it was sort of going up i think within like a, a few weeks like a, within a few months I, I definitely lost sort of 70 or 80 percent of what i'd made which was definitely in the thousands of dollars so yeah that was a pretty big amount for a, a um you know i would have been a 14 year old at the time yeah so what so what was your strategy from from that point there you know did it really put you off investing for for a little bit do you need to sort of lick lick your wounds or were you just straight back into it well i mean it taught me one very big lesson which is and, and it's the same sort of lesson when you go to a casino which is like you know, you can't make any more bets when you've lost all your pot. And so the yeah. most important lesson when you're investing is to really protect your wealth as well as grow uh, grow your wealth. And because I lost such a large proportion of what I had, and I think the, the small amount that I had left over was stuck in tech stocks that were barely trading and, and pretty illiquid and probably hard for me to get out of anyway, it, it actually gave me a few years where I actually couldn't invest anymore because I actually didn't have any money to invest. <laughs> so I probably spent a few years then like, you know, reading books and, and trying to learn and, and doing all the things I probably should have done from the start um, because I had the time to do them. Yeah, it was, I mean, I always think it's the most valuable lesson for anyone when they're starting to invest is is to, to lose money early because one, that, that sort of kicks off your learning a lot quicker. But also if you lose it early, that's going to teach you lessons that will help you avoid losing much bigger amounts later on. Yeah. So those lessons obviously paid off because you went from uh, losing that money to winning the ASX schools share market game three times. Now, Bryce and I are currently playing it at the moment, uh, and we're definitely a long way off winning it. So while we have Come you on, on back <laughs> <yourself>. <laughs> all right, well, I'm a long way off winning it. Can't speak for Bryce. Um, you know, we've got you on the show, so we uh, figure it's the perfect time to pick your brain and uh, get some good tips from you. Uh, so hey, I guess. Tips on air. I mean, you might want them off air, and I'll yeah, give yeah, everyone true. else. That. <laughs> true, 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 yeah, true. we might get some Pause shocking recording. tips from you. Let's start with the story of the three wins, and then let's go into, uh, I guess, how you did it. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, like as I said, I, I was pretty fascinated by all of this stuff when I was even a few years younger than when I started playing this game. Um, I, I started high school, and I think it was in year seven. Um, I, I heard about this ASX share game, which was a, a way to kind of hone in your skills of trading. At the time, my school hadn't uh, didn't have any entries in this competition, so I actually remember going to one of the teachers in the school. He was my geography teacher, who I liked, and said, "Hey, um, to, in, to enter this competition, you need like a sponsor teacher. Would you mind signing off on this form for me so I can fax it into the ASX?" 
Um, and the teacher you know, said, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. So I, I filled out the form, entered my team and faxed it into the ASX. And, and for that year, I was the, the only entrant from my school. Now, um, four or five uh, years later, I think we were the, we, our school had the most entrants out of any school in New South Wales because everyone had, had seen that I'd won it a few times and thought this was like easy money. So yeah, we had a huge following within our school just within a matter of a few years. Um, but but at the start, it, yeah, there wasn't too much interest. I think around Australia at the time, there was about 50,000 people that were entering it. So it was a pretty big competition though at the time. And I think the rules haven't changed between then and now. So um, I think you got $50,000 to invest and, and um, you got to choose from the top 200 stocks on the ASX. Um, and, and you had a period of eight weeks to buy and sell. You, know, you got charged brokerage just like you would in real life. Um, you, you could you know, put in orders that were at market. So you bought it at the, at the price at the time or at limit and, and wait for the price to come to a certain level. Um, I, I don't think there were stop losses at the time. I heard you guys on a, on a other podcast talking about having stop losses. We didn't have that back then. So you actually had to manually go in and do that. Right. Um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, I remember going to the school library at lunchtime and, and working on it after school, you know, trying to pick, you know, what stocks I'd be buying and selling to, yeah, to try and win this prize money, which um, like, as you'd heard, I'd lost a bit of money from trading. So I was trying to make some back so I could invest it. And, and prize money I thought was um, a much easier way than working at, at Woolies or DJs like a lot of my friends. Can you remember what uh, your profits were when you won in your first year as a, as a percentage? I think it actually varied quite a lot game to game. So the, the first one I won was in actually 99. So it was actually before the, the big tech wreck. And, and I think um, for that year, the profits were actually quite large because tech stocks were all on fire. So yeah. I think um, you know, the, the winner in, in that year, well, yeah, the, the winning few teams like, you know, probably made in the eight weeks, uh, I'd say sort of 50 to 80% profits. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, then in later competitions when markets weren't as kind, I remember in 2001 um, around when the sort of, you know, the Twin Towers came down in September, markets had a big fall. And I think the winner of that competition probably was at like 52,000 because the market fell. So, and I think actually the share game is a great sort of microcosm of how the market works generally, which is that on average, on average, the average person out there is going to just get what the market return is. Yeah. Um, and it's the same in the share market game. If, if the market falls 5% during those eight weeks, um, you can bet that the average player in the game is going to be around minus 5%. And then they're going to be distributed around that, that player or that sort of average player. So there's going to be some that have done, you know, a bit better, some that have done a bit worse. Yeah, the, the strategy to be the one that's done the very best it has actually nothing to do with investing at all. And, and unfortunately, that's one of the sad things about the game is it doesn't teach people about investing. It, it, in eight weeks, there's only one lesson you can learn, which is about speculation and, and, and um, trading, um, which is a useful lesson. But most people aren't going to become professional traders. And, and so it's not a very um, you know, reflective lesson of what investing should be like. I mean, my, my strategy for all of the games was basically to work out what were the riskiest, most volatile stocks um, available um, and then um, take a view on whether those stocks were, were going up or going down and, and put all of my money into, you know, a few stocks in one sector. Um, so we were still we still had to diversify at the time, but you could put 20 percent of your portfolio into five different, very similar tech stocks. And, and they actually look, you know, they actually would go up and down in a pretty similar way. So you didn't look at anything like diversification or anything like that? Because I think Alec and I definitely agree that, yeah, in such a short space of time, it's uh, incredibly difficult to apply the lessons that and, and you know, the style of investing that we talk about on the show um and so yeah the the way that you approach these is difficult i think the way that you talk about investing on the show is a, the way, exact way i approach it now which is that you know the most important things to think about are diversifying spreading your money across different you know assets and companies and industries and countries um and keeping your costs as low as possible so not trading very much um, unfortunately, in the share game that lasts eight weeks, if you do that, you're almost guaranteed to be just around the middle of the pack by the end, you know, which in the real world is a good result. So, you know, people shouldn't kid themselves and think that's bad. If you can be around the middle of the pack consistently um, or a little bit above the middle of the pack because you're not paying so much in fees, you know, you're going to do very, very well. Um, however, in, in an eight-week competition, in order to do really, really well, um, you basically have to have a view and, and put all of your money in one place, which is a, 
absolutely terrible strategy in real life because you'll either do very well or you'll do terribly. Um, and so, you know, what isn't reported is that, you know, while I won the share game three times, I also lost it lots of times very badly. <laughs> but in order to win it a few times, you also have to take, um, you know, big risks that sometimes don't pay off. And that's what active investing is about, is about, you know, taking risks. And, you know, that, you know, even for the best traders out there, um, you know, if 60% of your trades uh, work out, that's actually a pretty good result. Now, moving on from the share market game, we've been looking at uh, some of the things you've written and uh, just spoken about. And one lesson that we thought was particularly relevant for our conversation and for our listeners uh, was the cryptically titled Buy Straw Hats in Winter. So as an introduction to some of the principles that you use at Stockspot, uh, can you explain what you mean by this? Uh, sure. I mean, I think it's a pretty outdated saying. From memory, it comes from Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's actually a value investing quote that it's not mine. I've, um, you know, I've misappropriated it probably. <laughs> uh, but I, I think in principle, um, and, and it's a principle, you know, I use with sort of my investing and, and the investing we, we do for clients is that you know, markets and, and, you know, different investments, you know, get out of hand and they get out of whack. So, you know, it, prices often go up too fast or they fall too fast. Now, it's always very different, uh, difficult to know, you know, how out of whack something is or how long it's going to last. So things can be too high for a, a very long time or they can have fallen for a very long time. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to just not be in, in investing at all or, or to, you know, have everything in one place all the time. But what you can do to you know, reduce your risk and, and make sure that you can survive when things really fall is to make sure that you know, one, when some assets or some investments are doing well, that you're looking to kind of harvest profits or take profits out of those investments and put them into investments that aren't necessarily doing well. Um, and, and so that, that's what I mean by buying straw hats in winter is, is you know, if, if you sort of think about the seasons and, and, you know, when people buy umbrellas, it's always when it's raining. But that's when, you know, the 7-Elevens the, uh, can put the prices up of the umbrellas and, and rip everyone off. And, and umbrellas aren't usually the best price when it's raining. And, and you know. Straw hats are, you know, I think historically what people would wear in summer. I don't know how many people wearing <laughs> straw hats these days. I don't even think Billabong sells many straw hats these days. They went out of trend probably 10 or 20 years ago. But, but maybe now is the right time to be buying them. To any of those listeners looking to set up uh, clothing stores, straw hats could actually be a good thing to be buying right now. Back in vogue. So it, it, you know, it sounds uh, great in theory, but you know, we're in well, the US are in one of the longest bull runs they've had in 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 history, and Australia is also doing very well uh, in terms of uh, economic conditions. So you know, looking at the valuations of of equities at the moment, a lot of them are at all time highs and performing very well. Finding, I guess, straw hats in winter in this climate, you know, is actually a bit difficult for some people that don't spend their days, you know, all day viewing stocks and, and making an opinion on it. So what are you sort of looking at at the moment that you think might be the next sort of straw hat in this climate? Actually, um, all-time highs, if anything, is a good indicator of markets um, you know, continuing to rise. Um, however, what we know from people's behaviour is um, what happens at all-time highs is retail investors, so inexperienced investors, tend to sell um, because all-time high uh, becomes an anchor um, where people are kind of, uh, you know, they, they see all-time high and they think they're getting the best price that anyone's ever got and so that's a good time to sell. But usually the reason something's at an all-time high is because things are doing well. So the economy is doing well, you know, margins are, are, are good, um, you know, employment's, you know, employment's looking good. Um, and, and actually, um, institutions typically are buying at all-time highs because all-time highs are a signal of, of better times to come, not worse times to come. Now, occasionally, like you say, all-time highs, you know, you know, become all-time highs that aren't, um, you know, reached again for a long time because markets can fall. And, and that's always what people are very nervous about, you know, which is understandable because you don't want to be the sucker who, you know, buys everything, you know, at the top and then has to wait 10 years to kind of get back to break even. And so there's a few approaches to kind of, I think, reducing that risk, at least psychologically for people. Um, one of them is, um, and I know you've talked about it before, which is dollar cost averaging or, or, or buying gradually over time. Yeah. Um, 
which helps to kind of, I think more than anything, it, it reduces that sort of mental stress of, you know, thinking that if you suddenly bought everything today, you might lose everything. So the, the data actually shows dollar cost averaging does worse on average than putting everything in on day one. But uh, <laughs> really? Oh, a lot worse. Because if you think about it, markets are trending up all the time. So if you're yeah. dollar cost averaging on average, you're buying higher and higher and higher. So yeah. on average, you would have been better off to buy everything on day one. But um, psychologically, um, I think there's a lot of sense to dollar cost averaging. Um, but sorry, going back to your other question, in, in terms of um, investments that, you know, I guess we would look at that are out of trend at the moment, we we invest in a bunch of different investments. And, and the only reason we'd kind of add more or less to an investment is through the process of rebalancing. And that's when one investment does exceptionally well um, and another hasn't done well, we will tip money from, you know, the the one that's done well into the one that hasn't done well. And if we have a look over the last um, few months um, at at where we've been rebalancing, it's generally been... First of all, um, out of um, global developed market shares, um, so out of like US shares and European shares and Japanese shares into emerging market shares, so shares in China and and Russia and and other emerging economies. The difference between those two investments in, in terms of valuation is probably at its widest level in 15 or 20 years at the moment. That's not to say that might not last a lot longer. That could last another five years or 10 years. But um, we know over very long periods of time, these things sort of come back, you know, to more similar levels. Um, and, and so that's one area that, you know, we'd be buying, you know, like those straw hats at the moment. And the other sort of unloved asset that we think adds a lot of value to um, a portfolio because it acts as a bit of an insurance policy is gold. Um, and it's quite a controversial investment and, and there's, you know, famous investors that love it and, and there's, you know, famous investors that hate it. But we think it adds a lot of a lot of security to a, a portfolio because sometimes when everything else is going badly, um, gold is actually what is going to save your portfolio and, and um, you know, stop you from losing a lot of money. So that that's one uh, value, I guess, uh, investing lesson that we thought introduced the premise behind Stockspot or like the philosophy behind Stockspot. A second one that we wanted to introduce uh, before we talk about Stockspot specifically is your comment that the best advice is boring, which we thought was uh, pretty profound the more you think about it. So I guess time to make us bored. What's what's your what what do you mean by that? Uh, and I mean, what I guess what is good and boring advice? Well, here's a good example. So when it comes to being healthy, for instance, I think this is another place in life where the best advice is boring. So the the best advice when it comes to being healthy is eat well and exercise. However, like nobody really wants to hear that. Everyone wants the, the sort of secret pill that's going to make it a lot easier for them to get healthy without exercising or allow them to you know, eat badly and, and still be fit. So um, unfortunately, in a lot of areas of life, people are looking for sort of shortcuts um, and, and sort of secrets to success that are more exciting or, or you know, uh, uh, re- require less work or, you know, sometimes require more work, um, but just are a bit more interesting. Um, but, but generally, these aren't the best ways of doing things. And, and, and I really believe in a lot of areas, like simplicity is the best way to do it. You know, uh, you know having um, a good diet and exercise, in, in theory, you know, is pretty sort of simple in terms of a message. But in a world where there's, you know, donuts and Tim Tams in your face all the time, it, it, um, that doesn't mean it's necessarily um, easy advice to follow. Um, so advice that's simple doesn't have to be easy advice either. And I think all of that has a pretty strong parallel to investing. But when you think about it, investing as a, as a beginner, you probably think it's very overwhelming. You know, you see there's so much information in the newspaper. There's, you know, stockbrokers and newsletters, and there's all sorts of different ways to get information. And all of those different people are telling you different things. And there's lights flashing everywhere and, and everything seems so immediate. And, and you feel like you sort of need to keep up with everything. And, and only by keeping up with things do you, th- you know, you imagine that that's the only way you can do well. 
Um, in fact, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. The more that you focus on, you know, reading the paper and listening to friends and watching experts on TV and, and, and um, the, the more actually you probably get worked up and, and the more your emotions start to come out and actually, um, you know, harm your ability to make good investment decisions. So my philosophy and, and the philosophy I've carried through to the business I run, Stockspot, is that for most people, to get the best investment results, you know, the, the formula is pretty simple, which is diversify. So spread your money and spread your risk as broadly as possible. Keep your costs as low as they can. And, and then the third one, which I think is just as important as those two, is, um, you know, learn to understand and manage your behavior. Um, and, and that's, I think, um, the one area where an advisor or, or, you know, someone can actually come in and actually um, help someone get better results um, then left alone, which ultimately was the inspiration for starting the business. Yeah, three pieces of advice that are always recurring from, you know, from the best investors around the world. So they obviously... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That obviously works. Speaking of Stockspot and, and why you started the business. So it's Stockspot is, uh, was Australia's first online investment advisor. I mean, it sounds simple, but when I said it to my housemates, this is, you know, we were interviewing Chris, he's the founder of Australia's first online investment advisor, said, what's that? So can you give us a bit of a, an idea on, on what the business is and, and what gave you the idea to start Stockspot? Sure. And if you can think of a better way to describe the business, I'm all ears. <laughs> <I'm> all ears. <laughs> uh, I think robo-advice is very complicated and, and confusing and, and a bit intimidating for people. So I, I don't think that's the best way to describe it. But, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, even online investment advice, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you guys are, are providing online investment advice to some extent. No, um, no, no. So... We, we, we explicitly don't provide advice. We need to make <laughs> oh, no, that no. very clear. <laughs> um, so... The inspiration for the business really came from you know, I spent my career after I learned to trade as a kid. I, I got my grad job actually trading money for a bank. Um, so uh, I think I got pretty lucky at the top of the last bull market in 2006 and seven. I got a graduate job um, at UBS, which is you know one of the big investment banks and has a pretty big presence in Australia. Um, and my job was actually to trade the bank's money, if you can believe such a job exists. Um, so I didn't have to talk to any clients. Uh, you know, I didn't actually have to, to, to um, talk to anyone within the business. Uh, I sat in front of a computer screen. Uh, I tried to learn about all the different sort of companies out there and all of the different assets. And, and then my job was to, um, you know, manage a portfolio of those assets to make as much money as possible. And, and working in that world, you know, what I realized is just how crowded um, financial markets really are. So I would go to lunches and to conferences and, and there'd be you know, hundreds of different analysts and fund managers and, and traders and hedge funds all clamoring around a business like BHP to understand their earnings results, for instance. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, how can all of these hundreds of different people um, who all are, you know, extremely smart, you know, they've all done, you know, some sort of finance degree, probably got an MBA, you know, probably got tons of experience. How can all of these different people think that they can all outsmart each other? Because when it comes to investing, it's not really about, you know, whether you're smart. It's, it's about whether you can outsmart all of the other people doing the exact same thing as you. And, and kind of following that line of thought, I started to, you know, question whether sort of actively investing money for, 
for most people is the right thing to do. Um, and, and by actively investing money, I mean either you know, managing you know a portfolio of shares yourself or or actually hiring a fund manager to, to pick the right shares and, and try and time the market for you. And, and so I started to research and, lo- and learn more about this and, and started to get a better idea of, of really the, the history of financial markets and how really it's only over the last um, 30 or 40 years that financial markets have become, you know, such a, a place to be. You know, the, the, it's an industry where there's so much money to be made. It's really attracted so many smart people. But as a result of that, what's happened, it's described as the paradox of skill, which means that in any area where there's um, a lot of competition, eventually it no longer becomes um, about how smart the different competitors are um, overall, but it actually becomes about their relative skill. And and what we've been seeing over the last 40 years in, in markets around the world is that the relative skill of different fund managers has been decreasing. Um, So they're all pretty similar. There is only a tiny fraction of people out there that are able to outsmart the market consistently. And that made me realize that for for the average person, the market itself gives you a great return and is a pretty great reflection of what the fair value of different investments are. Um, So people shouldn't really need to um, pay a lot in fees or pay layers of costs um, in order to access the market. And, and this sort of realization happened around the same time when this sort of new form of um, inve- uh, new way of accessing investments was starting to become available in Australia, um, ETFs, which, which I know you guys talk about a lot on the show. But I was so excited about these things because as someone who had actively traded money for many years, um, I was, uh, I think, sort of humble enough about my own sort of skills and, and, and the skills of the rest of the industry to realize that, that actually this is the way most people should be investing. And, and the industry had, had basically, you know, pulled the wool over most people's eyes around the actual value that they add. And, and that for most people, you don't really need to waste your money um, on, you know, paying expensive you know, advisors or brokers or fund managers to manage your money. You'll actually get, on average, a better result by not paying them anything. Um, and, and that was a bit of an aha moment for me, which, you know, was a moment I think a lot of, you know, a, a lot of um, investors around the world have come to, you know, Warren Buffett included, um, realize that actually for most people um, the best way to invest is just um, in a low cost fund that basically matches the market and at the time that uh, it was very difficult to find any information about these sorts of things in Australia um, what really shocked me was most financial advisors weren't recommending them and, and there was not very many easy ways for people to access them um, because even if you, you were using an online broker it was quite hard to research, you know, what were the right ones to buy, you know, what should you be looking for, um, how you should you combine them, and how should you manage them. Um, so the inspiration for the business was actually, um, you know, I had a few friends that were coming to me saying, how, how should I manage my money? And I would help them discover ETFs and learn about them. And I thought, hey, there's got to be a business model in this because ultimately this is the way um, this is the way 90% of the population should be investing, um, but probably only 2% of the population, if that, even know about these things at the moment. So you focus on ETFs and the advice is sort of automated. What ha- What's the process of uh, recommending different ETFs for different investors? How do you take uh, individual circumstances into account, given that it is all automated advice? That's a great question. So there's a few, when it comes to investing for anyone and, and it, sort of regardless of how you're investing, there's kind of a few important questions you need to ask yourself. Um, and, and these are the sort of questions we ask clients um, in an online sense when they when they join up with us. Um, those questions kind of circle around a few areas. One of them is basically your investment time frame. Um, so this is important because the longer you plan to invest, generally, um, the more risk you can take. Um, because in the short term, no one really knows where markets are going, but we know over the long run they go up. Um, so the longer you can, the more you can withstand sort of bumps in the short term, the more risk you can take and the more return you can earn. So that's a question we ask um, people, which is how long are you planning to invest for? Um, another important question is whether people need cash or they, they need money from their investments um, along the way. So uh, particularly retirees out there, they often um, you know, need to draw an income from their investments. Um, and so that will sort of impact you know, what investments um, we recommend and how they're combined. 
Another important factor then is like your risk. I, I like to call it risk capacity. So yeah, people might have heard of risk tolerance before. I think tolerance isn't the right word because um, a lot of people aren't don't really know how tolerant they are to risk until they actually are faced with a risky situation. Um, but also people can be trained to be um, smarter around how they think about risk. So if you just ask someone and, and find out what their risk tolerance is, that actually might not point you in the right direction of what the right investments are for them. So we try and get a, out, um, we try and understand people's risk capacity, their ability to take risk. And then also we combine that with their investment experience because your investment experience, you know, as we've discussed earlier on the show, um, will probably dictate whether you've lost money before, you know, whether you've seen the ups and downs of market cycles. And that actually can, um, you know, be a pretty good indicator of how you're going to behave if there is a fall. And then all of this information we basically combine to work out what is the right mix of different types of investments um, to help give you the best chance of, of reaching, you know, of reaching the outcome you want. So I guess the, the question that we have to ask uh, is uh, you, so you take all that information into account and uh, then you spit out a uh, sort of suggested course of action. Given that there are that sort of robo advice is growing as, as a sector in um, this financial advice market, how does uh, StockSpot's advice differ from other robo advisors? Well, you're right. So around the world, like this, this area is growing really fast. And I think, um, you know, last count, there's now hundreds of billions of dollars managed by different robo advisors around the world. So, you know, while we were the first in Australia, you know, there's some very big businesses in the US and Canada and, and the UK and Germany doing similar things. And, and there's also been sort of similar guys pop up um, in, in Australia. So what I'd say is that the similarity between all of the robo advisors that I've seen, or, or at least the biggest, you know, robo advisors around the world is how they kind of approach, you know, the, the combining of different investments, you know, on a, on a high level. So basically, you know, how they decide on how much shares should you go in your portfolio and bonds go in your portfolio. Most robo advisors use the same kind of uh, theory which was a theory that was developed in the um, in the late 80s and early 90s, and then won a Nobel Prize, um, the, the Nobel Economics Prize, um, which is known as portfolio theory or, or Markowitz portfolio theory. And, and this is kind of the, the most commonly accepted sort of uh, framework for using different investments and combining them in the best way um, in a portfolio. So what I'd say is all robo-advisors um, are reasonably similar in their approach to that. Where they differ is, is in a few areas. So first of all, it, it comes down to um, how and, and um, you're actually choosing the actual individual ETFs in a portfolio. Um, now, we have a research process um, that we actually publish on our website, and every year we put out a research report that covers every ETF in Australia, which explains like how we um, select ETFs for each category um, and, and what factors we find are important. Um, so even though um, other robo-advisors you know, might also invest in Australian shares, um, they may not invest in the same um, specific ETF as us because um, they may um, think other, you know, other factors are important when selecting an ETF. Um, so I'd say that's one area that's different. You know, another area that's obviously different is, is track record. So it, different um, service providers, you know, obviously if they launched at different times in history, will have you know, different timeframes of, of track record. Uh, another area I think that, that we're a bit unique, and, and I haven't seen anyone else in the, in the world go down this path, is we thought it would be a great idea to give our customers a little bit of control over some part of their portfolio where they can essentially pick and choose what investments go in but we manage the risk of those investments. So we make sure that they're not going to lose too much money from them. Um, so for a, a part of everyone's portfolio, um, we allow them to choose uh, a few different ETFs across all sorts of different countries and industries based on what their personal preferences are. So there's a level of personalization that we've built into the product that we think um, you know, a lot of people are interested in having. They want to have a little bit of control, um, but they want to feel safe and secure that they're not going to lose a lot of money. And then, I mean, I think the other area that we're very focused on is actually being a, a bit of a consumer champion in this area. So 
um, since 2013, every year we basically put out this research report, which is called the Fat Cat Funds Report. Um, now it's a bit yeah. of fun because it's a bit of fun because you know super and investments for most people isn't a very sexy thing to think about or talk about. So I decided to spice it up a few years ago and, and have a bit of fun and 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 create a bit of a research report, which is quite easy reading for people that can teach them about what's important when you're picking an investment. You know, what are the best super funds out there and the worst super funds? Um, and we call the best ones the fit cats. You know, they're the ones that are doing well. And, and the worst of the worst we call fat cats. Um, and, and every year we, we you know, make a, a bit of a show about what the best and worst funds are. And, and we've gone and delivered trophies and checks to the worst funds for how much they've rip, ripped off consumers by. So, I mean, we think it's pretty important to be out there raising awareness like you guys are about um, what's important with investing because so many people, unfortunately, um, don't understand. And, and like it can mean the difference between, you know, buying something you want in the future or retiring comfortably and not. So, um, yeah, I think that probably explains how we're, how we're um, focusing on being different. Yeah, I got to say, if our listeners want to jump online and have a look at the Fat Cat report, there's a tool there where you can just put your fund in and it will tell you uh, how it rates. I definitely uh, was playing around with that before. It's uh, it's a great tool. Yeah, it is good. Yeah, thanks. I mean, there's a lot of things out there. I think ASIC has a has a pretty good website that does you know good work at, at explaining things to people. The challenge, as you guys know, is, is actually just, you know, making things really easy for people to understand. And, and, and that's the thing. Investing, when it, when you boil it down to the things that matter is actually quite simple. Um, so if you can boil it down to those, you know, three or four things that people should care about, I actually believe that's what's going to make the biggest change, you know, in Australia and um, is actually just helping educate people about those few things that are important. Chris, you mentioned there that one of the advantages of going through a, a robot advisor or, you know, stock spot particularly is, you know, the comfort that the investor has knowing that you are managing the the risk side of it and the exposure to downside. And, you know, stock spot started in what has now become the, you know, one of the greatest bull runs in, in history. And uh, I would imagine that it hasn't faced a, a, a massive downturn uh, for all of his, its investors. So what, what do you do in terms of minimizing risk and protecting your investors? Is that just done through ETFs as well that sort of short the market or have a, a, a bear approach? Or do you actively manage it on your side in terms of moving between asset classes and, and cash and that sort of stuff? How do you minimize the, the risk exposure? Yeah, another great question. So um, in terms of managing risk in a portfolio, there are different approaches. So uh, you, you've explained two of them. One of them is to take some sort of hedging approach. So taking bets in an opposite direction. So you could buy a bear ETF is, an, is the example that, yeah, is a correct one. We don't think that's a great strategy in the long run because you know, we know broadly that markets go up. We also know that nobody really knows when markets are going down. Um, and, and then also products like that one and, and others that allow you to protect against the downside are actually extremely expensive. And, and I don't mean just in terms of their headline fee, but there's also other internal costs of products like that um, that, that relate to their hedging and, and their borrowing, which means that if you hold them for any extended period of time, regardless of whether markets go up or down, you're going to lose a lot of money. So we avoid products like those. We also don't take the second approach, which you, you explained, which is a more a more tactical approach. So taking bets on which things are going to go up or down. So, you know, should we put more in, in Australian shares or global shares at the moment or in emerging markets? Um, we don't think that's an area that we can add any value in. And, and actually, I don't think it's an area anyone can really add a lot of value in. There's very few people in the world that have been able to consistently predict um, and make money out of timing, you know, when and, and which investments to get in and out of. Because often, you know, investments that are expensive stay expensive for a long time. So you can be wrong for a very long time. Um, so both of those approaches, you know, are common in the industry. We just don't think they add any value to customers. Um, rather than that, we, we take what is known as a um, strategic asset allocation approach, which means that um, rather than try and you know time the market or, or or protect against risk, which is quite expensive, we look at the long-term history and, and relationships between different investments, and then try and combine them in a way that is going to give people some cushion if markets fall, but then give people um, most of the profits if markets rise. And, and I can probably give you a, an example, because you mentioned there hasn't really been a, a big fall since we started. There sort of has been one. So between 
uh, I think it was April 2015 and January 2016, the share market fell about 20%. Okay. No, for, for most people, that's a, a pretty big amount. So by actually combining our assets um, in, uh, you know, in a way that helps to protect the downside and also has, um, we have in all of the portfolios investments like bonds and gold. Bonds and gold actually rose in price um, during that period when shares fell 20%, which meant that even the riskiest of our portfolios in that period when markets fell 20% um, only fell 10%. So actually, one of the ways that we, we look at protecting risk is actually just in getting the correct mix of different assets in your portfolio. And we don't, we don't change that very often. So there's very few reasons we'd actually change that mix of investments. Yeah, that kind of, it might be a little bit too technical for, for listeners because it relates to the volatility of assets and the covariance, which is like the re relationship between different assets. But ultimately, our aim is to give people some protection if markets fall, um, but access to most of the gains if markets rise. And, and historically, um, the way we're going about it has, has done that very well, not only since we've existed, but if, if you trace back history and, and, and use a similar method. I, I guess the other way, which isn't really related to the portfolios, goes back to what I said before about behavior. Um, you know, we take a pretty proactive approach when markets fall of reaching out to clients you know, through all sorts of different um, channels, whether it's through social media, through our email, through our blog, you know, through phone calls and, and through our dashboard to actually educate them and keep people calm and focused on the long term. Because we know that people, you know, do need a bit of handholding when markets fall, you know, especially first time investors get quite nervous. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's the da most dangerous time for most first time investors is the first time they've, they've lost money and, and they're getting nervous. Um, but if, as long as they realize that they're in the right strategy for the long run um, and, and that their time frame, you know, is still appropriate and they're still, you know, looking to invest for a few years, then there's really nothing that needs to be done when markets fall um, from their part because, you know, we know that, you know, as long as you've got a bit of time, you know, markets are going to work on your side. Some great comforting advice. Yeah. So you, over to you, Ren. Yeah. So Chris, That's boring advice, but hopefully comforting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned bonds and uh oh sorry I've gone blank here bonds and what what was the other countercyclical oh. asset? Gold. Gold. That's gold. gold. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do do you um try and use cash strategically as well um and sell as market gets higher. Or do you try and stay fully invested at all times? No, so cash is an interesting one. Cash really isn't an investment asset. So it, I don't think cash belongs in a portfolio. I think cash does have a place. So I think everyone should have some cash as part of their overall asset mix. And usually cash has a place as, as a bit of a safety net or a rainy day fund. So no one should ever have money that they might need to sort of dip into in the short run if they lost their job or if they had a medical emergency in shares or in markets. That should always be in cash. Um, but in terms of your investment portfolio, uh, cash can never really have a place. And, and I mean, you, I think your example kind of makes some sort of sense that in theory, you'd think that you should have some cash because if markets rise, you can deploy that. Um, if markets fall, you can deploy that cash. The problem is nobody really knows when markets are going to rise or fall. So you might be sitting on cash for decades um, and, and that, that cash is going to really harm your returns. Um, I mean, there's a beautiful example of this, um, you know, for if, if anyone's interested in a bit of a history lesson, which is um, in the late 70s, there was a famous newsletter writer in the US who wrote a stock tipping newsletter. And he would always tell his, his um, readers whether they should be, you know, invested fully or, or, or all in cash. So he only kind of had an on or an off switch, but he had a pretty good track record throughout the late 70s and early 80s. He got it right, you know, more times than he didn't. Um, and he got a huge subscriber base of people that followed him. Um, and then I think it was early in 1981, he basically went out with the call to his investors that and to his subscribers and said, OK, everyone, the market's at a short term high. I want you to sell everything and go to cash and I'll let you know when to buy back in. So everyone went 100% cash. Now, unfortunately, the, the market actually never went um, down from that point. So from 19, 1981 to when this uh, newsletter writer, uh, I think eventually died in 2014 or 15, um, the market actually never fell um, and he never reversed his call. Um, so he, he waited and, and waited and, and waited and, and you know he lost 
hundreds and hundreds of percent in in returns over that time. Um, and he goes down as the worst um, stock tipping newsletter in history um, because he told everyone to sell in, in January 1981, and he, and he never changed his mind. Um, so it, it shows that. Yeah, I mean, if you're wrong and, and you have all of your money in cash and you just wait, um, you know, the, that can be just as disastrous as investing and watching the markets fall. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I love that answer because I, uh, I agree uh, pretty wholeheartedly with that. Uh, unfortunately, my co-host uh, has a different, <laughs> uh, different opinion. He, his portfolio is currently 60% cash. Because uh, he thinks that uh, the end Shred is me. nigh and uh, something's about to happen or something will happen in the next you know, but, year or two. What do you reckon no, about uh, that? Well, I, I had a lot of confidence on September 14, actually. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that came and went. But, so uh, did I. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting question when you're actively managing... You know, and I mean, from my sort of prior experience, actively managing money, when you're actively managing money, the hardest thing to know is, um, you know, when you have a hypothesis or a theory about what's going to happen um, as new information comes out, at what point do you, um, you know, capitulate and say, hey, I was, I was wrong. I, I've got to get back in or I've got to sell. And it's a very difficult thing for active managers to do. Um, now, you might eventually be right, but when it comes to investing, I mean, if you're eventually right, but your timing's wrong, that's pretty much as good as being wrong. Um, so it, you know, active investing is really, really tough and, and, and you can be sort of eventually right. But what you typically find is across the cycle, you know, you might be right a few times, but then you'll be wrong a few times and those will probably cancel out and, and, and cost you everything you gained when you were right. So. Look, it's a difficult one. You know, there's always going to be people out there that want to take a bit of an active view, and, and I think that's absolutely fine. I, I think um, you know, th there's always a tendency that people have to you know, you know, want to be more active. So, and I think that's probably a great way to learn about markets is actually by taking a bit of interest and, and having a view. And I think uh, I think the way I'd sort of look at it is as is recognizing that your you know your view should be able to be fluid and, and change, but also that view shouldn't dictate a hundred percent of your portfolio. Um, you know, let your active decisions maybe dictate twenty percent of your portfolio, um, and and with the eighty percent, you know that that part can just be you know invested. You know, recognizing that you know your active part may or may not be right. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Something that I've been mulling over for quite some time now because you know you're right. It's it's getting to a point where I'm like, how long do I hold on here? And and Ren keeps saying the the moment you put all your money in, the moment <laughs> that the stock market's gonna go down. Yeah, um, I mean, I ha have a similar sort of story. Is like one of my uh, one of the colleagues I used to work with. He he um, for many years and probably decades was really um, sort of negative on uh, residential property prices. Hated it. Said it was gonna crash. Said it was gonna crash. And so we had a bit of a running joke at work that uh, as soon as he said he's bought a property, that's when everyone else is going to sell because that's when, you know, that's when the last non-believer has finally bought. Uh, and, well, and I think, to be fair, I think he bought in 2016 or 17. So he might have been a year a year ahead of, of when, um, when he picked the top. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I think yeah, I'm getting to the point now where I'm more thinking about the uh, asset allocation in terms of how much cash is suitable. Um, certainly, definitely still have a view that, you know, having maybe 20% rather than 60% is probably the better way to go because, you know, I've, I've definitely left some money on um, some profits on the table over the last few years. So, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, if you have that strategy, another, I guess the other side of that strategy is make sure... I don't know if you've already thought about this, but what I'd be doing is actually kind of writing in your journal or writing down somewhere like at what price, at what levels you actually would buy more and how much more, because there's a huge temptation then if, if markets do start to fall and you're right, that you might actually miss it because you, you might keep on waiting and it might not quite fall as far as you thought. Mm. Um, and so you actually, you know, you're sort of right, but not exactly right. And then, you know, markets might go all the way back up and you might have still been waiting for it to fall to exactly where you were waiting, mm. um, waiting for. So I'd almost say a good way to de-risk what you're doing is at least have some lines drawn in the sound where you say, okay, if markets fall 5%, I'm going to buy 5% more. If markets fall 10%, I'm going to buy another 10%. Um, so then you, you have the comfort of knowing you've got a bit more of an automated strategy around, um, you know, buying if your theory is right. Yeah, true. Great point.
So, Chris, we'll just move on a bit more of the practical side of StockSpot before we jump into our um, final three questions of, of the show. Um, for those beginners that do want to partake in, in what you offer, is there a minimum investment? You know, what are the fees around it? Can you dollar cost average your way in on, and all this sort of stuff? What are the practical uh, ways that we can sort of use StockSpot? Uh, yeah, sure. There's a few different ways. I mean, our our clients vary quite a lot. So our, our minimum investment is $2,000. And we've got a lot of clients that start with that and then, uh, you know, making $100 deposits, you know, every few weeks or, you know, just adding money as they've got extra savings. Um, so that's a, a perfectly you know, good strategy and a good way of getting started in markets. You know, I do think for beginner investors, dollar cost averaging is a great strategy, you know, for the reasons we were talking about before, which is that, you know, psychologically that can really help insulate you from, you know, being worried about markets falling because you know that if they do fall, you can take advantage of it and actually buy some at those at those cheap prices. So, we, yeah, we have clients doing it like that all the way up to we've got, you know, a few um, much bigger clients that are, you know, two, three million dollar clients that are, you know, just sitting on an investment for the long run. So they might not be dollar cost averaging. They've just, you know, put in, you know, their self-managed super fund or a family trust or something like that. Um, and, and they're investing for, you know, 10 years or 20 years. And, and um, you know, they're, they're just looking for a good return um, like that. So, I mean, to get people started, we basically say to people, we're not going to charge fees for the first six months so people can get started if they're investing less than $10,000. Um, and, and that allows people to start to dollar cost average and, and build up a balance. Um, and then we don't charge for brokerage. We just charge um, up to a $10,000 balance, um, a $5.50 a month fee, which yeah, essentially covers our cost and, and you know the, the cost of managing your money. Um, and then as a percentage, that decreases as you invest more money, So, um, which nice. is a, a pretty typical model in the industry. Yeah. Nice one, Chris. So. We we have reached our uh, final three questions now. Now these are the questions that we end every interview with. Um, so first one, what is your go-to source for investing information? Uh, yeah, there's a few I'd say. So first of all, I love reading books about the history of markets and and people that have been involved in the history of markets. And so yeah. I, on holidays recently, I either read the hard copies or on, on my Kindle. But you know, some of my favourites. My favorite trading book of all time, which I've probably read, you know, six or eight times, and every few years I try and pick up is called Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, um, mm. which is actually about a trader in the 19, um, you know, in the early 1900s. And I think well, what it basically teaches is so many of the principles when it comes to trading and, and managing risk um, haven't changed over the years. That's very much a trading book, so I, I wouldn't recommend it as a way of learning about investing because it's going to put you in some bad habits unless you want to become a professional trader. But otherwise, I just love reading about um, you know other you know famous investors in history. So I, I read a, a few months ago um, a, a biography about George Soros, uh, who's a famous um, you know a macro trader, and he was the guy who famously broke the bank. You know, by he was shorting a lot of sterling when um, the the Bank of England basically couldn't support it anymore, and he made a few billion dollars in a day. Um, so yeah. I, History books is one place, and the other is podcasts. So there's some you know great investment podcasts out there these days. You know, you guys included. I mean, one of the US <laughs> ones I, I love listening to, which is you know a similar sort of format, like interviewing interesting people in the industry. Um, um, is called um, uh, Masters in Business, and I think they you know interview some really fascinating people who have had you know huge historical significance in investing. And and for anyone that's wanting to learn about investing from from you know uh, yeah, a, a lot of you know grey-haired people in their seventies, eighties, and nineties, even um, you know mainly in the US. Like that's a, a great way of getting a bit of history. Um, so I, I'd say those two are probably my main source. <laughs> yeah, nice one. Now the second question, which you've already kind of answered, is: Are there any must-read books? But this can be investing or otherwise. So I know you've already mentioned uh, the George Soros book and um, Reminiscent of a Stock Operator. But are there any others that you think are must-read for our listeners? I think so. Those two, yeah. I mean, they're they're quite different. The two I think everyone should read as, as um, you know, first-time investors or anyone that's looking to manage their own money are a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, 
you know, which is more about the psychology of, of managing money and, and written by, you know, a, a, a couple of people of which who uh, won the Nobel Prize for Economics as well. And, and then there's a similar book which also looks at psychology of investing in, in a slightly different way, which is called Nudge. Um, so I think those two should be high on anyone's reading list because they'll actually help you understand, you know, why you're feeling a certain way or why you're thinking a certain way when you're investing. Um, so if you can start to identify some of these um, kind of weaknesses, it will actually make you a better investor. And if any of our listeners are interested in that Thinking Fast and Slow, which is by Danny Kahneman, or Nudge, which is by Richard Thaler, they will be in the show notes for this episode. We'll have links to both those books and the other ones we mentioned before. Okay, so third and final question. Uh, if you could go back to your early investing days and te- tell your 10-year-old self uh, any piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, another another tricky one. I think... I'd probably give myself the advice, which which is actually probably my favorite investing quote, and, and I have it written in a few places on my desk and, and in a few other places, which is a Latin quote, um, and, and it's res tantum vale quantum bendi potest. Um, have you okay. ever heard that? <laughs> no, I haven't heard that one. So, yeah, it might be an unusual way to end the show, but actually that quote is a famous quote, which means a thing is only worth what someone will pay for it. Okay, I like that. And I think think it's a pretty important one when it comes to investing and trading because it actually explains so many things um, that happen in markets, you know, why markets go to, you know, go up too far or fall too far, but also why they can stay crazy for a long time. And and it really comes down to the fact that markets are driven by people and, and, you know, price is really just the function of like two people getting together and agreeing on a transaction. You know, I think that's a lovely quote that sort of explains how markets work. And, and, and it's one that if I understood better from an earlier age, I probably could have avoided losing a lot of money. Great way to wrap up, Chris. You know, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. I've certainly uh, taken away a lot from from this interview. I'm going to invest 100% of my cash. No, <laughs> <really>. <laughs> Um, look, uh, yeah, really, really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing uh, some of the insights there. I know that uh, a lot of the listeners out there are playing along with the ASX share market game. So hopefully they got something out of it. And, you know, it's great to have the resources such as Stockspot out there for people that do want to be in the market, but, uh, you know, want to have someone else look after the risk and the rebalancing side of things. So I guess, if, is there any way that people can contact you? Do you have a Twitter or a social media or, or what's the best way that people can make contact if they wanted to? Uh, sure. I mean, they can find me on Twitter just under my, my name, Chris Brikey, or under our business name, Stockspot. Um, and then on Facebook as well, um, you just look up Stockspot. We're, we're building a pretty big community there. So, yeah, thanks for having me on the show, guys. You're doing a terrific job you know, raising awareness and, and educating people about investing. So, yeah, keep up the great stuff. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Uh, again, I really appreciate your time and, and uh, I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. Hello, mates of Equity Mates. Or I guess that just makes you equity mates. Anyway, it's Bryce here. One of the most frequently asked questions we get is, where do we find information about all these stocks and, and where's a good place to start? Now, we could do a whole episode on this and we often do touch on it, but the best place to start is by signing up to our Thought Starters weekly email. Each week, we send you some cool stuff that has caught our eye during the week, as well as some more detailed articles on stocks and invested relating content. We also include Basics 101. These are articles tailored specifically for beginners to really propel you on your way. We don't spam you. I mean, we hate spam. It's once a week and there's enough stuff in there to occupy you for a full day of browsing at work. Now, Ren puts a lot of effort into finding quality articles for you guys. So if anything, just sign up so he feels the love. Head to equitymates.com and chuck in your email at the bottom of the page. Equitymates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.